Hey everybody, thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. This is uh, about the letter to the Colossians. Um, and now, some of you, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I am from like the last of the generations who wrote love letters to their significant others. Now, some of you young people, you're, when you hear a, a love letter, you don't even know what that is maybe because you're like, was that like a letter of the alphabet that you texted to somebody? I don't know what, like what is a letter? It is actually something we would, we would sit down and we would take a pen and a paper and we would write out full sentences with full words. Some of you kids don't even know what a full word is anymore the way you text, okay? But we would do that. We would write out all these things and all these really lovey-dovey-dovey type things. And then we would, we would put a stamp on it. Uh, they started out, at, for me, at 32 cents. I don't know. They're like $1.89 now or something like that. I don't know. But um, you'd, you'd put an address on it, and it would get in, you'd put it in the mail, and like two or three days later, somebody would pick it up and read all the things that you did four days ago. It was awesome. Um, I actually have some, so I'm a little bit of a sentimental freak, and so last night I knew I was going to be talking about this, and I'm like, I need to look at my old letters, my love letters to Crystal and me, and you know, like her, the ones she gave to me. So I found this one. This is, this is the oldest love letter between me and Crystal, dated oh, June 10th, 1997. Now, this is actually not a love letter. I'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, this was, we were not quite dating yet at this point. She was just after me. Um, did I say that? Oh, my bad. Uh, this was a love letter that I wrote to her. This is how romantic I am. Minnesota Vikings stationery, everybody. <laughs> Boom! I am amazing. Now, this one wasn't quite a letter, but it was, it was in this stuff, and it was handwritten, so I thought I'd show it to you all. Um, you probably don't know what it is from where you're at, but I'll read it. It says, CJ, my love for you could never be half-hearted. It's a half of a heart. Stop, it gets worse. <laughs> you open it up, and it says, instead, I'm, I'm giving you my whole heart. It's pathetic. <laughs> at the bottom, I said, with all my heart, Kellen Lee. Here's the thing. I think this is really bad. I, I didn't think much of her intelligence, I don't think, because I actually have right here, it says, open with an arrow. I don't know what was wrong with me, guys, but we used to write letters. We wrote a lot of letters to each other in the time. See, kids nowadays are like, well, why would you, why would you write what happened to you the last couple days, and they're not going to get it for two or three days if you're just going to talk to them on FaceTime later or text them? Well, see, we didn't have cell phones. The, the, the cell phones that you had, they were big and clunky. They were too expensive for me when I was in college, and so this is what we did. We, would, when we had three years of distance dating. We were at different colleges. One of the years, she was in college, I was in high school. It, don't worry, it was only a year apart. Um, but so she, she's calling me, and we'd talk to each other and be like, okay, so tomorrow, I'm going to be in my dorm room at this time. Call me then. And if you didn't call then, you weren't getting to talk that day. And so that's why we wrote letters, because there was a lot of stuff that, that just we didn't get to talk about with each other. Don't get me wrong. I don't like writing handwritten letters. I wrote like five thank you letters to some people the other day, and I thought my hand was going to fall off. I don't like writing things by hand. 
But there was something about getting a letter from the person that you loved, the person that you were hoping to marry one day. I, guys, three weeks into dating Crystal, I knew I wanted to marry her. That's how crazy in love with that girl I was. Um, letters, are, letters were a special thing back in the day. Now, many people don't realize this, but the New Testament is actually, a lot of the New Testament is just a collection of letters that were written from one church leader to a church or to other church leaders. And the most prominent church letter writer in the New Testament is a guy by the name of Paul. And so this, this book that we're going to be go, going to looking at, the book of Colossians, truthfully, it's actually called the letter to the Colossians because it's a letter. It's not a book. But this is, this is his letter to the church in a city, a little tiny city named Colas. Some people might say Colasse, Colas. Yeah, just pick and just say whatever you want there. Um, but this is a 10-week series, and I, a lot of you, you might go, man, 10 weeks, how are we going to talk on, on one kind of topic here for 10 weeks? You could talk forever on the letters from Paul. They're so thick and so rich with good stuff. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the very eight first, the first eight verses of this chapter. Um, and a lot of the, the beginnings to, to Paul's letters, there's a lot of greetings, there's a lot of things that, that it might, on the surface, you might be like, what would you preach about in those verses? But I think you're going to see here, there's an excitement that Paul has for the church here in Colossus. There's an excitement that he has for the gospel that I think it will speak to us this morning. There's a lot, there's a lot in here, I think. And so you're going to see his, his passion for the good news of Jesus coming right out of here. So we're looking at Colossians 1, again, the first eight verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, it's always good to kind of know the situation uh, that a letter was written in. I, I talked about this, this one. This is one from Crystal, July 10th, I think it was, uh, June 10th, whatever, in 1997, about four months, three, four months before we started dating. And what's funny about this letter, if you were to open up and read it, which I'm not going to do, uh, but she starts it off with, hey, bud. See, we weren't dating yet. And she was trying to play it off like we were just going to be buddies. I'm telling you, I was, I was not going to have that for very long, okay? But there's something about the context, knowing the context. She was... Uh, in Green Bay that summer at a summer school kind of camp thing that she went to. And man, I begged her beforehand. I'm like, don't go to it. Don't go to it. It was going to be six weeks long. And she's like, oh, I'll just go for three weeks and then I'll come back because I'd miss you. I don't want And she, the whole time she knew she was going to go for six weeks. She was telling me what I wanted to hear. And, and they got to three weeks. She's like, I'm going to stay here. It's just three more weeks, Kelly, and I'll see you in a little bit. I'm like, oh, what are you doing to me, girl? There's something about the context, knowing the context. So when you understand that context and you read the letter, you kind of, you can feel what was going on in that time as we were writing letters to each other. Well, there's not a ton that we know about this tiny little agricultural town named Colossus. Uh, it was, at one time, 
It was a pretty notable, notable and, and thriving city. But at the point where Paul was writing this letter, there were some other cities around the area. There was a city named Laodicea, Hierapolis, that had become a little bit more prominent in this region. It also was in a region where there were great earthquakes at times. And actually in the year 61 or 62 AD, there was a, a giant earthquake that took place in the city of Colossus. And for the most part, what we think is the whole city was destroyed. And we're not even sure that it got rebuilt after this. And so Paul is writing this letter to a city, a small city, that was in decline. It was probably before they had actually been completely destroyed, but they're in decline. And he writes to a, a fairly young church that is there. If you caught the last verse, there was a guy named Epaphras. And Paul says that it's Epaphras who has taught you. See, Paul was always going to the city areas. He wanted to go where all the people were to get the word of Jesus out to as many people as he could. But this guy Epaphras, he was the one who was teaching the people in Colossus about Jesus. So why did Paul write this letter to this fairly new group of Christians? Figuring out the reason for why a letter is written, it's not an easy thing to do. Anybody ever listen to a phone conversation? And maybe you're not supposed to listen to it, but you're, you're trying really hard to hear what's going on, but you can't quite, un, can't quite figure out the situation behind the conversation because you're hearing one side. None of us do that ever, right? Because it's annoying and it's, and it's rude, so don't do that. But it's hard to figure out what's going on in the conversation when it's just one-sided. That's the problem that we've got when we take a letter like the letter to the Colossians. What was he writing to? For the most part, we, we know that there was probably some type of incorrect teaching that was going on, or maybe not a teaching, but there was a sort of blending that was going on. What do I mean by blending? They li- this, this area, there was uh, a lot of uh, Greek culture gods that were being, the, the myth- mythological gods that were being served. There was pagan god worship. There was a lot of different kind of stuff other than just people following Jesus. And so what would happen is these new believers, they were having a hard time not blending some of this other stuff with their new faith in Jesus. N.T. Wright talks about it this way. He says, with the passage of time and the movement of people from one area to another, the lines between different cults and religious ideas could get blurred. And the phenomenon known as syncretism, the mixing of religious ideas and practices from a wide range of sources, became quite common. So here's the deal. Before we even look at and really dig into any one verse, I think there's something really important that that we can actually pull from this letter. Is your faith a Jesus-led faith, or are you adapting a blended faith that struggles to be in line with the truth of Scripture? We have a lot of the same issues, I think, that this Colossian church was going through. Man, we live in a culture where it's really important for us to understand this. We live in a culture that is kind of pushing people to to this idea of blending. Blending what it is that you believe to be true in the world. Blending what it is to, what, what you believe about who Jesus actually is. Blend it so that it will become comfortable for you. So it'll be what you want it to be. It's the same kind of stuff that was going on for these people in the city of Colossus. So what is the truth? The truth is that there is no such thing as your truth. Honestly, I don't even think it's a logical thing for people to go around saying, well, my truth says this. If your truth is different than my truth, then one of us is really wrong, or we both are. There's, there's no in between. And so we've got this 
this blending of faith right now that's happening where we think that we can, we can have our own truth, but it's just not, it's not logical. If we're not careful, we start to mold for ourselves a faith that's not what the Bible would say it should be. We start to mold for ourselves a Jesus, a God, who is not the actual true God of the gospel like Paul is talking about in, in Colossians 1.5. This letter from Paul, I think really like a lot of his letters, what he's asking is, will the real Jesus please stand up? And once we figure out what that real Jesus is, can we please go and follow him? And not some made-up thing that we're all just kind of wishing Jesus would be? See, we might take the true message of Jesus to one extreme or the other. Um, one side might, might, might hear a sermon from Jesus, the greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says some stuff in there that an extreme person could take it to one side or the other. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Now, you could listen to that passage and be like, man, be a follower of Jesus. You've got to be perfect. You've got to follow everything to a T, what God is doing, or else, man, you, go, you might go to hell. You maybe, you maybe grew up in a, in a home environment where that kind of message was sort of given to you. If you, don't, if you don't follow things exactly like you're supposed to, you're going to get yelled at. You're going to get grounded. There's not going to be much grace there. And so what happens is we begin to blend what we see in, in, our, in our world, what we want for our world, with what the real gospel is supposed to be, and we get an extreme that we shouldn't have. Or we go to the other side of the extreme. There's a person sometimes who thinks that it's about what you do that matters, and that's all that matters. Uh, and then there's another person who says, it doesn't matter at all what you do. As long as you believe in Jesus, that's all that matters. You know, and then Paul talks about something in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says that the Lord spoke to him about something. And it's, that he said that God said to him, my grace is, grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now you can read that, and Paul had to deal, he had to dispel some some misunderstandings with people in, in a lot of his scripture writings. There was one point where he said, there's people out there saying that God's grace is so good that we should just keep on sinning, go on and sin even more so that his grace will abound even more. And Paul's like, that's dumb. Don't do that. That's taking it to another extreme. We go to two extremes. One of grace, and it's all about grace. And one about, it's all about works, and we gotta do everything perfectly or we're gonna be in trouble. Grace is not a free license to sin however we want. And a call to righteousness is not a mandate to be perfect or else we're going to find a one-way ticket to hell. But I think this is just an example of the ways that we blend faith, even in our day. Paul wants the Colossians to get back to the true message of the gospel. That's, what he, that's why he's writing the book of Colossians. And I think... It's the same for us. Man, we live in a world where it can be really easy to get away from the true message of the gospel. The true message about what the grace of Jesus is actually all about. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not a news that we make up as we go so that it can fit our own personal narrative. 
The gospel is a beautiful, unchangeable message of grace and hope that aims at two main things, helping us to realize that we're forgiven and giving us hope that we can grow to become more like Jesus every single day. If your gospel has gotten away from those two things, then you've gotten away from the true message that Paul talks about. That message, I think, is necessary to keep us from going to too far extremes, one or the other. You guys know that extremes are really not the greatest thing. You see it in politics. One extreme or the other, it's a dangerous place to exist at. And it's a dangerous place to exist at in our faith. So I want you to consider this, for real. Are you following a faith that is part of your own making? Are you following a God that is a part of your own making? Or are you following the real Jesus of the Bible? We've got to realize we are really capable of going on and believing things that we're not meant to believe. That we live in a world that is pushing us, especially pushing our young people in particular, to believing things about this world that is not what God would want us to be believing. That's why Paul's letter was written. So, there's a lot of things. Uh, getting into the actual first eight verses here, there's a lot of things that we could look at in these first eight verses. You know, I look at verse 3, and he's, he's talking about praying for these people, these, these people in the Colossian church. The gospel gives us a passion for people. It gives us a passion to pray for people, for Paul to pray for people he doesn't even know. I think that's a, an incredible message of what the gospel is for us that we see in verse 3. Verse 4, Paul talks about the faith of these people within this church and the love that it brings to them that they have for other people. And I think the good news of Jesus does that too. It sparks something in us. It sparks a love for, us, for people in us that we wouldn't have any other way. There's a lot of good stuff in these verses, but I want to I hit for the rest of the time that we've got this morning, I want to look at verse 6. Uh, my boss, Eric, he's our executive pastor. He was the campus pastor here for a number of years. There's one thing that he always says when it comes to a passage or when it comes to a message. And he says, where is it that it hums? Where is it that it hums, where it makes the most sense, where it stirs you the most? And I'm telling you, at least for me, verse 6 is the thing. Verse 6 is the spot where, where this passage hums. It says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. See, the gospel is not just, it's not just the good news about Jesus. It is the best news that you're ever going to hear. Plain and simple. It's the news that Jesus, while we were dead in our sin, with no way of giving ourselves a spiritual life, a spiritual existence, Jesus chose to come into the world for us, God becoming man, and he lived perfectly in a way that we never could live. And he died a sacrificial death in our place. And what he did is he exchanged his perfection for our imperfection. And the good news is really, that it's all about the gift of this grace that our God has given to us that he didn't need to give to us. That's what the gospel is. But what I love here in Colossians 1.6 is that it says that, it, re it really tells us that the gospel is a different kind of news altogether. It's not just the good news. It's literally a news that's different than everything else. It gives us life. It breathes life into us. There is something powerful in it. It bears fruit. Now, how many of you like to listen to the news or watch the news? Raise your hands, anybody? 
There's, there's always about 3% of us. I don't like to watch the news much anymore. Um, I like to listen to the news or I like to read the news. And me reading the news usually means going to a couple different news websites and reading the headlines of the articles. And I'm like, oh, I, I know everything that's going on in the world now. Not really, right? Um, news tends to kind of, it brings like a darkness into a lot of our hearts. It feels like death a lot of the time, listening to the news, reading it. But then there's other news that is actually really good news. There's good news that we hear all the time that's good news. One of, the, one of my favorite good news things to hear is when a couple who's been trying to, trying to have a baby all of a sudden come and say, hey, we're pregnant. Like, it's, the, it's just such good news. And, and you rejoice with them, you're excited with them. Can I say something, though? There's sometimes when I hear that, that a couple has gotten pregnant, they're going to have a kid, it doesn't change my life after about five minutes. Uh, this sounds bad, but sometimes I go on with my life, and I forget that somebody got pregnant. And then it's like six months later, I'm like, is that person pregnant? I don't know, you know? I'm not going to ask, but um, it, it's like this thing in us, we, this good news we can get, but it doesn't change us. And what Paul's saying is that the good news about Jesus, it's different. It is a different news because it actually brings us life and it changes us. It, it bears fruit like nothing else can in this world. It is different. And so I like how he says this. The first part, he says, the gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It reminds me of an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 55, 11. God says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now, maybe you are Mr. or Mrs. Negative in, in the room today. And you're like, you know what? I don't think that the gospel is bearing much fruit in this world. This world is messed up. This world is a whole heaping mess of trash, if that's how deeply you think. Let's just calm it down a little bit, okay? It's not that bad. But yeah, it looks like, it looks like if you look around the world on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't always look like the good news is doing a ton, right? But realize that our world has gone through ups and downs, cycles, in and out, moments of darkness and moments of reawakening. And in the midst of all of that, through all of it, God has been shining his light through Jesus into the darkest places of the world. And his word has been changing the hearts of some of the darkest hearts that you could possibly imagine. His word, the gospel, does do something in the world. It brings light and it brings change and it's different. And how does it do that? The second part of, of, of this verse. Again, he starts off, the gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And then he says, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The gospel both bears fruit and grows. It comes alive when two things happen. One, when the gospel is heard. And two, when God's grace is truly understood. Something I talk about a lot, I'll be honest with you. God's grace truly being understood. Have you truly understood God's grace? Here's the thing, I know that you've heard the gospel because bottom line is between communion, between parts of this message, you have heard the message of the gospel. You've heard it. And the truth of it is, is it's not super complicated. The gospel's not really that complicated. It's, it's sometimes hard for us to, to, to buy into. It's deep, but it's not that hard to understand. What is hard to understand, though, is God's grace. Have you truly understood God's grace? 
It's God's grace that ultimately makes the good news better than any other kind of news. As I was a kid growing up in church, I thought that I understood what grace was all about. I knew that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. I knew that I was forgiven. I thought I understood grace. But as I got older, I realized I didn't really understand grace like I should have. And as I get older, I understand even more. I still don't know what grace actually is. I still don't understand it to the depth at which I will when I see Jesus face to face. That's the reason that the gospel is, is bearing fruit and growing in me. Because I understand grace a little more and it bears a little more fruit and growth happens. When I stop understanding grace a little more, the moment that that, that happens in any of our lives where we stop understanding grace, that is the moment, I believe, where all of a sudden everything gets cut off in the growth process. That's where fruit gets cut off in our lives with Jesus. When I stop understanding grace. One day, Jesus, uh, he went to go have dinner at a Pharisee's house. This Pharisee was named Simon. And Simon invites him, and, and everybody kind of knows that Jesus is going to be at this, this Pharisee's house. And so this one woman comes to the house, and she brings with her an alabaster jar of perfume. And the moment she gets in, she begins to weep. Whatever's going on in her head, she's thinking about all of, all of what she's done in her life. And she sees Jesus, and she's in his presence, and she begins to weep. And she goes and sits at his feet, and her tears are covering over Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his feet down. She pours this perfume and anoints his feet with this perfume. And while this is happening, you have to understand this. This woman is the worst of sinners. She's the kind of woman that nobody in the town wants to deal with. She's the worst of She, I mean, we might have our sin, but look at her. And that's exactly what the Pharisee Simon started thinking. The Bible says that all he was doing was thinking in his head, man, if Jesus only knew. If Jesus only knew what this woman was. He didn't even say it out loud. And then Jesus tells him a story. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, tell me, teacher. And Jesus proceeds to tell him. Remember, Simon had never said out loud what he thought about this woman. But Jesus tells the story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then the end of this encounter is my favorite part. Jesus says at the very end of this encounter, he says, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. He was trying to tell this to Simon. Dude, you think you've been forgiven little, so you love little. But here is, here's the secret to this whole story. Not one of us has been forgiven little. We might think that we've been forgiven little, but not one of us has been forgiven little. We're all like this woman in the story who was weeping before Jesus. How do I grow in understanding God's grace? Maybe it's through a difficult conversation that you have with somebody that you love. You've been in those moments before where you're having a difficult conversation and it's like they're just throwing projectiles at you and it hurts. Every single one of them hurts. But instead of taking up your own projectiles and throwing them back, you absorb the pain. Understanding God's grace is understanding that God absorbed our pain that we threw at him. It's us understanding that I'm in that moment. Maybe it's not time for me to, to throw those projectiles back, but just absorb it. 
In his grace, Jesus absorbs my insults and my wrong attitudes, and he took it all to the cross. Growing in grace sometimes means doing just that. It's having the grace to absorb somebody else's pain when they need you just to absorb that pain. Understanding God's grace means knowing that you are, like Paul calls himself, he told, about, he told everybody, I am the worst of sinners. Simon didn't understand that when Jesus was in his home, that he was the worst of sinners. He was saying, no, this woman's the worst of sinners. Paul, the guy who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament was saying, I'm the worst of sinners. If we're gonna grow in understanding the grace of Jesus and that, and that growth will then lead to fruit, it means that I have to understand that I'm the worst of sinners, that I am that, that woman in the room weeping. It's okay if we're not fully there yet, though. I don't think we're meant to be fully there yet. Maybe more often than not, you're not gonna get it right. But for parents, your kids will teach you what the grace of Jesus looks like in your life. Believe me, they will teach you. Your coworkers will teach you what the grace of Jesus looks like if we let it. If we're willing to not just throw those projectiles as quickly as we can get them mustered up. Every relational trial in your life today is an opportunity for God to help you truly understand what the grace of Jesus really is. We think those relational trials are so bad and so awful and I wish I, they just weren't there, but sometimes, it sounds weird, but sometimes they're a gift from God so we can understand what his grace for us looks like. The gospel is first and foremost about Jesus. And Jesus is first and foremost about the love and grace that he wants to give to us. Today, are you letting Jesus inform you about what is most important? Or are you letting your faith become blended with everything that's around you and Jesus is taking a back seat? Are you growing and truly understanding what the grace of Jesus actually looks like? Do you recognize that you've been forgiven of so much? Does that knowledge begin, is it beginning to, to bear fruit in your life on a day-to-day -day basis? Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.